Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it. My guest today is Dr. Shilpa Ravella. She is a transplant gastroenterologist and assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University. We're going to discuss her book, A Silent Fire, the story of inflammation, diet, and disease. Dr. Shilpa Ravella, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I am desperately interested in inflammation and I've read a little bit about what you what you're working on, and I want to know all of it. Like, like you can explain the history of inflammation, how we discovered this thing, inflammation. Is that true? Absolutely. How, how did we come to find inflammation? And and this is different than like I I bumped my head and it swelled up, right? Exactly. Well, it's it's sort of along the same lines. So basically acute inflammation is, you know, say when you bump your head or you stub your toe, you can see those cardinal signs of inflammation, like the redness, the heat, the swelling and the pain. And that was actually, we were, we were seeing things like that long, long time ago. And those signs were first described by uh, the physician Celsus in 25 CE. And those are the signs that we're all very familiar with. But what we can also talk about is a different type of inflammation and one that lingers in the body for a long time. So when we speak of chronic inflammation, that refers to, for example, autoimmune disorders like inflammatory bowel disease, which is a condition I see in my office a lot. And in those conditions, patients suffer from chronic inflammation of the intestines. They have abdominal pain and other gastrointestinal issues. And rheumatoid arthritis, for example, another instance in which you can see chronic inflammation, patients suffering with joint pains. And then there's another, yet another type of inflammation. And this type of inflammation is chronic, but you can't see it. You can't feel it. It's inside of your body and it lingers at a low level. Now, when we talk about the biological price of inflammation, you know, we've evolved these robust immune responses to protect us against things like pathogens and poisons, traumas. And one of the biological prices is that our immune system may turn against us. So this can take the shape of autoimmune disorders, uh, like the diseases I've talked about, inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, and more. 
But another biological price is this low-level hidden inflammation. And this type of inflammation is tied to all kinds of chronic diseases that we suffer with today, like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, even neurodegenerative and some psychiatric conditions. It is so pervasive. So what we're finding today is that this biological price of inflammation is everywhere. So how do we... How do we determine whether we have that or not? Like what are, if, if it's so hard to see or it's so, it's under the radar, how do we, how do we figure that out? Well, that's one of the unifying threads of this type of inflammation is that we are not routinely accustomed to testing for it or treating it. So when you walk into your doctor's office, you're not likely to, to get a test for inflammation and then say, hey, hey, here's your treatment for inflammation. That's not so common these days. But there are some proxies. And one of the things that we can measure is, for example, blood sugar. So if you have diabetes, if you have high blood sugar, then most likely you do have some level of silent inflammation, even if you don't have the overt kind, because we know that the immune system and metabolism, which refers to things like turning food into fuel and getting rid of waste. And the immune system and metabolism are very intertwined and they co-evolved. So having the high blood sugar is one proxy for being inflamed. Another is obesity. So having some of that excess belly fat, for example, and important to keep in mind that the fat that's around your belly is different from the fat that's that's patting your thighs or your upper arms because the belly fat is actually a marker for deeper fat that wraps around our inner abdominal organs. And this type of fat is called visceral fat. And visceral fat is actually highly inflammatory and it functions like an immune organ. In markedly obese folks, over half of their fat cells are actually immune cells, which is kind of an interesting uh, st statistic. So so that type of fat is is inflammatory and we may not know it's there. But if you have the belly fat, then you do know that most likely you have some level of, of silent hidden inflammation and well, there are some markers. Sorry, can I stop you? I want to sure. know what that means. What, what, what is an immune cell? An immune cell refers to cells, for example, like neutrophils and macrophages. Uh, these, these are cells that are part of our immune system. And when we're faced with a germ or a poison or anything that's trying to get into our bodies, trying to harm us, our immune cells rush to our defense. So these immune cells are meant to protect you. But at the same time, you know, if we, if they are triggered by other things in the environment, like a bad diet or a bad lifestyle, they think they're trying to protect you, but then we're triggering our immune system and we have a low level chronic inflammation that gets going. But our immune cells are all around our bodies. And, you know, we have not only the macrophages and the neutrophils, but also B cells and T cells, all kinds of immune cells that are that are fighting to protect our bodies. Yeah. I have a daughter with type one diabetes. So wrapping my head around what happened because she got, we were, we were actually on a trip in Europe when she was four, this is like 15 years ago, she got a cold, which we thought was a normal cold. And then we came home and the next thing, you know, she like, my wife thought she had a UTI cause she had to pee all the time. And oh, it turns gosh. out that was it, you know, her, her immune cells, those cells you're talking about, mm -hmm. 
instead of fighting this cold or in conjunction with fighting this cold also went to her pancreas and attacked the beta cells there mm -hmm. and so all of this stuff the the and and i imagine she was have experiencing some inflammation prior to that but it it seems to me especially for people with diabetes type 1 or type 2 if sugar can be a precursor to diabetes because inflammation can cause it then you're kind of stuck because once you have it you're suffering with i mean it's very hard to get a perfect a1c score once you have type 1 diabetes you know i mean right, you can you can right. do good but perfect like a non-diabetic is very very difficult right that's very true and you know we do know that because of these intimate connections between the immune system and metabolism inflammation can disrupt insulin signaling so inflamed cells tend to ignore insulin's directives. So we do know that diabetes is associated with inflammation, having higher blood markers of inflammation that, that you can see with various tests, for example. So it is, it is a big problem. Yeah. So what, what do we do about this? I also want to talk to, I want, I desperately want to talk to you about, uh, transplant gastroenterology. That's very interesting sure. to me too, but I don't want, I don't want to get away from, um inflammation yet unless they're linked somehow sure i i'm happy to talk about uh things we can do to prevent and to treat inflammation as well as well as transplant gastroenterology down the line but one of the main things that we can do to not only prevent but to suppress and to reverse inflammation in our bodies including the silent kind is to really focus on what we're eating and what we're eating gets so confusing because there are so many different diets out there online today. And we've been talking about inflammation for such a long time. I feel like we've been hearing about it for decades or even longer. And today we really have the science to say that inflammation can be a cause of disease. And not only that, but our food and our lifestyle can help to prevent and treat inflammation. So one of the things I, I tell my patients, the number one thing to do is to eat as many different types of plants as you can. So when we say as many and different, we're talking about the quantity of plants and also the quality. So when we focus on the quantity, for example, when you look at fiber, fiber is a nutrient we talk about all the time, but we are a fiber deficient country. Only 5% of us in this country actually meet the recommended daily allowances for fiber. And fiber is one of our most anti-inflammatory nutrients, if not the most anti-inflammatory nutrient. It is fuel for our gut germs or the trillions of, of uh, germs that live in our intestines. They, they take in that fiber, they digest it, and they make wonderful anti-inflammatory byproducts like short-chain fatty acids. And these byproducts aren't just sitting around in your gut. They're going all around your body. They're traveling to different organs even to the brain, and they are calming inflammation all around the body. So fiber is, is very necessary to feed those bugs. And I just want to testify that sure. fiber, fiber is difficult. I, and I had a, I, I'm kind of perpetually watching what I eat. I, I was very overweight. I went on a, a number of diets and I found that, um, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of how crappy I felt while I was overweight until I got some space and, and wasn't eating garbage food for the most part. And 
then now if I do occasionally have garbage food, I feel so awful that I tend to not eat it for that reason anymore. I still am very capable of overeating chicken breasts and olive oil and Mm -hmm. avocado. So I still have to kind of watch what I eat. But I did recently have a higher LDL, uh, not high enough for them to put me on a statin or anything, but they just said, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to eat more fiber. And I just want to say it's tough. Like getting 40 grams of fiber every day is, is not easy. And I'm like, I don't love vegetables. So I'll just sit and eat Mm -hmm. two cabbages to try and get it, you know, and throw some chia seeds into a non-fat yogurt and eat a half an avocado, just like tracking my fiber. It is difficult. So um, I like what you said of varying vegetables. That's, that's tough for me too, but I'm going to, I'm going to try that. Yeah, it is. It is certainly tough. And, you know, and the additional problem is that we can't get the same benefits from fiber supplements like we do from those whole foods, but also food preparation can play a huge part sometimes. And especially for some folks with gastrointestinal issues, they have trouble taking in all that raw food. So if you're trying to get in a certain amount of fiber and just eating tons of raw foods, then you might be eating for a very long time. And and raw foods are, are great and wonderful. Don't get me wrong on that. But, you know, you could also do cooked soups and 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 foods that, you know, that are a little bit easier for your body to take in, yet still have a lot of fiber. And when you look at the different types of fibers, you know, we have soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. And the soluble kind is the kind that feeds our gut germs. So you can find this in things like oatmeal and bananas. And it's a little less... It's a little more gentle on your body and a little easier to digest and take in. So if you're eating some of that soluble fiber, uh, you are feeding those gut germs and probably you're able to take in a higher quantity of, of fiber as well, as opposed to the insoluble fiber that you find in uh, roughage, like large, large salads. And both types of fibers are actually good for your body. But the soluble fiber, uh, if you focus on that, it can make things easier. And the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that our bodies take time to adapt to large quantities of fiber. So when you're cultivating that microbiome that can process all of that fiber, you have to realize that your body only has around you know 20 enzymes that can, that can process these carbohydrates, but these microbes wield tens of thousands. So when you don't have the microbes that can digest the fiber... You know, that's going to take some time to build up those microbes and to allow your body to, you know, your intestines to alter its secretions and its contractions so that it can digest the fibers. So I always tell my patients, start small. And that goes with things like trying to figure out, you know, which kinds of foods can I eat? What foods have more fiber and less and all, all, all of those things? It's really a process and any incremental gains that you make in this process is actually pretty great. So it's not all or nothing. Yeah, I've got I've gotten good. I hit my markers now. I, I'm not always at 40 grams. I don't know why I was told 40 grams, but my doctor said get 40 grams. And I started that day. I got 40 grams. And I will say over the course of the first three days, without changing anything else in my diet, I gained like eight pounds. And oh, then wow. and I, w- I felt bloated. I didn't feel great. And then I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this and see how this works. And then it all that mm-hmm. went right right away. That was water weight or vegetables sitting in my gut. And now it's been a few months and it's it's become quite a bit easier. And and I, you know, I learned little hacks. Like I did not realize that avocados had so much fiber in them. And that's a lot more fun to eat for me than cabbage. 
Um, mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I feel great now eating all that fiber. And um, I'm quite a bit more regular, which is nice. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it has so many different benefits in your body. And, and I think part of it really is trying to find what's the process, you know, how do I get from point A to point B and, and doing that 180 big jump from zero plant foods in your life and in your body to, you know, on a 90% or a hundred percent plant foods, it's, it's, it's really tough and it can definitely take some time, but it's well worth it because all of these chronic inflammatory diseases that we're talking about from, you know, the heart disease, the cancer, the diabetes, the obesity, all of these disorders, uh, you know, a large, a large part of the incidences of these diseases can be prevented and in some case treated with diet and also lifestyle as well. Yeah. Is there, is there any truth to, um, obesity being caused by the microbiome? Because I I felt like I read once that if you got a fecal transplant, you could lose weight simply because your body was sending different signals. Is that true? Oh, I think I just lost you for a second. Can you, can you hear me now? Yep. I I can hear you now. Um, Because I think the question was about obesity and the gut microbiome. And a lot of, a lot of the, the problem with a lot of microbiome studies is that we're in the early stages still, you know, it's an exciting, fascinating field. And there are a lot of correlations that come about. And then the key is to try to figure out where is the causation? Can, can this, can these germs, can a certain composition of germs actually cause disease? And if so, which ones? So that's, that's been taught to parse out. There's more data for causation for some disorders. Well, like obesity, for example, because there have been studies when, you know, we find that, uh, uh folks have, you know, in animals, for example, when you transplant the microbiome of a, of an obese animal into a thin animal, and this was in mice, you, you actually find that obesity can be transferred like an infectious oh, wow. disease of sorts. And let me just address my mic real quick here. Okay. Um, so, so we do have those studies and then also, um, there are human twin studies as well. Uh, and these are, these were done by Jeffrey Gordon. Uh, and so it's a very exciting field. I think to say that, you know, definitively all of these disorders, you know, across the board are caused by certain changes in the microbiome and specifically certain strains. I think it's, it's tough to be able to say that because a lot of what we're seeing is, uh, correlations as well, but, you know, certainly the microbiome does play a very important part in disease as well as in health. And often it's not just who the bugs are, you know, what kinds of species you have in your gut, but also what are they doing? What kinds of products are they making? Are they inching, you know, closer to the mucosa, which, you know, can, can lead to more inflammation or are they staying put? And we can even see that depending on what you feed your microbiome, the same bugs can act in different ways. So that's another important, important thing to keep in mind as well, because we know that our lifestyle, our food can change the behavior of these germs. And is the microbiome linked to stuff like depression and stuff uh, with mental health also? Is that true? I, 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 I haven't read research papers on any of this, but I have heard people talk about it. And, and I, you know, I feel like, I feel like it's a little bit like how we don't 
really understand the brain all that well. We also don't seem to understand the microbiome all that well, but we know it's doing something and we know there's more of it almost than there is of us. So it's got to be doing something, right? Yeah. I think in a lot of these exciting fields, sort of the phenomenology where what, what you see kind of precedes the mechanism. And, and so when we're talking about kind of, you know, how does this happen? How does the microbiome do this? Is there a causation involved? I think uh, that's a bit tougher to parse out, but we, we certainly know that, uh, you know, gut microbial changes are tied, associated with uh, uh, depression and mood disorders as well. And we know that there is an entity, you know, the gut, brain, and microbiome. And that means that you have a lot of nerve cells, you know, in your intestines and you have hormones and neurotransmitters communicating between the microbiome, you know, uh, the gut nervous system and the brain. So there's there's a very, very uh, exciting uh, gut, brain and microbiome connection. And uh, that's another field of research. And it's largely has been uh, based on preclinical studies or animal models. But at the same time, we are learning just so much. And when you look at a disorder like irritable bowel syndrome, which many, many people complain of. We do know, uh, for example, that there are correlations with irritable bowel syndrome and depression and anxiety. So your mood does affect your body. And, you know, even when it comes to inflammation, we know that the inflammation in our body isn't limited just to our body. It can cross the blood uh, brain barrier. It can actually affect our mood. It can affect our cognition. And the blood-brain barrier was once thought to be impermeable, but we know that immune cells can cross that barrier. And we know that the inflammatory proteins that they secrete can also uh, send signals through the cells that line your blood vessels in the brain. So there are all of these kind of fascinating connections between uh, uh, the brain and the microbiome, the gut. Okay, so eating more vegetables, that's one. What else can we do? Well, I think another important consideration, if we're just sticking to food for now and not going into lifestyle just yet, I think is how you prepare your foods. And this is another thing that the food labels don't really tell you because when you're talking about, you know, if you have a vegan diet or a paleo diet or a low carb or a high carb diet, there's nothing in those labels about how are you preparing your foods? So whole foods, minimally processed. And, th and that means, you know, you're not deep frying your foods and you're not eating foods that are heavily processed. You're staying away from those packaged foods in the grocery store and you're cooking your foods, you know, you're sauteing them, you're baking them maybe and, and, and using preparation techniques that are not as inflammatory because when you do some of those high heat uh, preparation techniques like the deep frying, you're prone to building up some of those inflammatory byproducts. And then there are also ancient preparation techniques like fermentation. And with, with uh, fermentation, you're transforming the intrinsic architecture of a food. And this is incredibly important for inflammation. So what fermentation does, for example, when you ferment a sourdough bread and you have uh, bacteria that consume uh, the sugars in bread and they can make wonderful products um, and you know, anything from uh, gases to acids, and you're actually increasing the nutrient content of that bread. And you are actually also taking out those problem nutrients. So with celiac patients, some of these folks who have trouble with the typical bread they see in the grocery store, they go to Europe and they have a traditional sourdough baked in the ancient traditions. And some of those breads have less gluten than even the gluten-free products here. 
So fermentation does change the architecture of the food and increase the nutrient content, also introduces probiotic type foods into the gut. So basically you, you're actually ingesting bacteria. And even if you're, if you cook the food, you still have the bacterial byproducts and you still have beneficial components that are going inside of your body. And even if those. No, go, go ahead. Even if those what? Oh, I was just going to say, even if those germs don't stick around, uh, sometimes folks will say, oh, well, how do you know that, you know, these bacteria have colonized gut? How do you know if it's taken hold? Even if it's a transient tenure in the gut, these bacteria are having conversations with immune cells, they're being exposed, and there's there are good things happening, even if they don't completely take hold. Can somebody do this without taking um, probiotics, you, you know, like the in pill form or they sell them in like whole foods, little bottles of, of like almost like a yogurt type of a thing. Like, can you do this just by, you know, eating kimchi and veggies? Absolutely. That's one of my favorite questions because I, I definitely think that probiotic supplements have a place, but for the average healthy individual, I usually just recommend fermented foods and you can make your own fermented foods at home. You can ferment vegetables and you know, you can, you can make your own bread if you want, or you can buy those things and you don't necessarily need a probiotic supplement and probiotic supplements. There are specific clinical conditions for their use. So the evidence supports a probiotic supplement in, for example, inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, uh, some cases of diarrhea, but the average healthy person d- does not need to have a probiotic supplement. And and oftentimes supplements aren't FDA regulated. And especially if you're immune compromised, if you have other things going on, other diseases, you want to be very careful in taking supplements. Right. So really you can just, but, but it's you're safe to eat veggies. <laughs> Obviously eating veggies is good. And then eating veggies is good. And yeah, then exactly. fermented stuff is fine too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Washing your veggies, uh, cultivating your own fermented foods, that that is totally fine. And w- what about lifestyle? When you talk about lifestyle, is exercise important to any of this? I think exercise is, is very important. Uh, and, and exercise, particularly when you look at it through the lens of inflammation, uh, we, have, we have dozens of trials across age groups that show that regular exercise can decrease the inflammatory markers in your blood. And what exercise can also do and a very interesting fact is that even if you don't lose weight from the exercise you were doing, it is actually still decreasing the, the amount of immune cells that are kind of going into that fat tissue. It is actually still decreasing inflammation in the body, even in the absence of weight loss. So, so the end point, a lot of folks think of weight loss as sort of, you know, the main end point of exercise. And we realize that it has physiologic changes in our body, beneficial changes in our body. There are positive pathways being created, even in the absence of that weight loss. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, especially when you're thinking about inflammation and this idea that this chronic inflammation can lead to disease down the line. So you're exercising and you're decreasing that in any amount. It's always a good thing, but exercise is very beneficial. I love exercise. I exercise six days a week, pretty, pretty vigorously. And I've, I have found personally exercise to be a lousy, uh, weight loss tool. I find what I put in my mouth to be much more helpful with losing weight than exercise. I have done stretches where I exercise simply to lose weight. And then I always wound up hurting myself or exhausting myself to the point where I couldn't keep doing it. 
But if I exercise every day to the point that I actually get to the place where I feel better, not like putting myself into a hole, um, that that's amazing. That kind of exercise that I want to do every day for the rest of my life is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just about fi uh, finding that sweet spot where you're not over-exercising, uh, which, which actually paradoxically tends to be inflammatory. And you're just finding that sweet spot where, you know, you were enjoying the exercise as well. And this can mean different things for different people because not everyone loves sweating it out in the gym for two, two hours. And when you look at uh, the blue zones, uh, and the, uh, these are historically areas where where folks have lived the longest, lots of centenarians in these areas, they seamlessly integrate exercise into their daily lives. So they do things like taking the stairs, for example, or doing a lot of housework or gardening, uh, taking long walks around their neighborhood, all of these different things that we may not even think of as exercise, you know, just how we transport ourselves from point A to point B everything adds up. So there are seamless ways of integrating exercise into your daily life as well. Yeah. When, when you as a doctor who studies, who specializes in stuff in the gut hear that, uh, there's a huge new diet fad that is anti-vegetable. What do you think? Like, what does that, does that bum you out? It does because of the confusion that it creates. Absolutely. I think you know, when we look at our history, when we look at our food from an evolutionary perspective, I can't think of any food that that doesn't have a nutrient that you can isolate and pinpoint as being sort of a quote unquote uh, bad nutrient. And, you know, this has been done for various nutrients. And when you look at plants, for example, plants, the whole plants are are very beneficial, lots of fiber, lots of vitamins and minerals and polyphenols, which are other great nutrients. But plants also evolved to defend themselves. So you will find anti-nutrients. You will find nutrients that when, when isolated and taken in excessive quantities are maybe not going to be so good for you. But we've, we've evolved to eat the whole plant, not, not the isolated nutrients. So we really need to be looking at the whole food and the entire dietary pattern. And part of the problem is that you know, a lot of the fad diets that cut out one thing or another, we we tend not to look at the whole picture. We tend to focus on the tree and not the forest. And we, we, we can say that there are many different dietary patterns that are helpful as long as you focus on a major core theme, which is the quantity and the diversity of plants. And I would add in the preparation of those plants as well. Yeah, I the... The argument that plants are bad for you, it, it always seemed irrationally silly to me. I mean, salt, if you take it, you, you can have a dose of salt that is bad for you, that can kill you. Right. Right. And if you have zero sodium in your diet, you can also die from uh, an electrolyte imbalance. So you need sodium. It's vital. It's integral to life. And you can eat too much of it. And I would think that that would go along with just about any of these things. But I've never heard of somebody eating broccoli and getting sick from broccoli unless there was some foreign agent like E. coli on the broccoli. I did know a girl once who ate so many carrots that she turned orange. I mean, oh she gosh. was she was eating a lot of carrots. And so she slowed down on the carrots and she went back to normal, you know, Um but like she wasn't sick from it. She just her skin looked orange, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a philosophy that applies to life in general. You know, this philosophy of 
there are these nuances and it's about finding the sweet spot and not about the extremes and and saying, if I can't get to 100%, I have done nothing or I'm worthless. I think it's really about finding these broad patterns and then adjusting your individual lifestyle, your individual cultural background, you know, and, and your preferences as well. And, and following that healthy, healthy dietary and lifestyle pattern. Yeah. I think that's a really important message because often I hear, you know, I hear from my doctor, like you need to eat 40 grams of fiber a day. And, and I kill myself the first week trying to eat 40 grams of fiber. And I probably should have done what you said, which is like ease into it. And it would have been easier. Right. But I do think you know, especially in the day and age, but it might've always been true that when we pass around these anecdotal ideas, it does become almost like a team sport of like, you eat that? Well, I'm not in your group. You know, I don't eat that, you know, this kind of thing. And I think that, you know, for somebody who is subsisting on processed foods for the most part to go into like one word ingredient foods, that's tough. That's a tough switch, yeah. you know, and, and you're gonna, you're gonna be sacrificing a lot of flavors and, you know, hidden sugars and hidden fats and stuff that your body's reacting to that you might not even be aware of. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and so. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I, I can totally see somebody going like, well, I have to do this when they're largely eating fast food and make it a week and then just find it to be too difficult, you know? Yeah, and so I think absolutely. what you're saying is it makes sense. Like go into it easy. Don't be an absolutist. I mean, it's tough to be an absolutist with anything with, mm -hmm. with the level of just how in your face Kit Kat bars are, you know, you, <laughs> can't, you can't go shopping for a camera without being sold a Kit Kat bar at the check at the checkout. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when you have this dichotomy of everything being black or white, it's either all or nothing. It really discourages folks as well. And when you're prescribing diet and lifestyle, it's so much different than prescribing a pill because you're not just taking that pill, you're prescribing this entire cultural change actually. And, and there are so many things in that infrastructure that play a part, you know, does this person have access to healthy food? Does this person have the money to afford you know, fruits and vegetables of, of this quantity? Uh, does this person know how to prepare them? Do they have the time uh, to prepare these foods? And there are so many things that go into that equation. So it's not as simple as saying, do this in a week and be back at the next visit, you know, take this pill for, you know, a, a few weeks and and come back. So I think, I think that's, that's part of the challenge too. And, and our medical system, we're, we're just not equipped with having that type of infrastructure to be able to really say we are going to not just you know give you a one-liner about these lifestyle and dietary changes but actually help you to implement them into your day-to-day -day life yeah I, I always I've, I've been on every literally every diet that has ever come out except carnivore I never did that because that <laughs> kind of came into existence after I'd 
figured out how to live in the happiest way I could live. Um, and I wasn't, I haven't been l- l- seeking out anything like that. So I, 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 I missed carnivore and I'm glad I missed carnivore, right? Because I can definitely overeat ribeye steaks, but I always wanted a diet to take the place of a pill. I always wanted the diet to be the pill. And I always looked at them as short-term things. And I always wanted them to solve every problem I had in life, which I thought would be solved if I just lost weight. And it turns out that's not the case. Like there's more to work on, you know? And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because like you can lose weight. You can, you can lose weight. You can lose weight eating Twinkies, but you know, how good are you going to feel doing that? And then what are you going to, what are you going to do? What kind of energy are you going to have? And if you're not going and moving your body more, like what's even the point? Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And, and, and then also, especially when we're young, we think, you know, we can eat whatever we want. And, and, and you see this too, sometimes, you know, uh, folks will have, will have uh, slim bodies, but we, you know, have a poor diet or not exercise. And unfortunately that, that also does not mean that you don't have the visceral fat. You you can actually be thin and still have that visceral fat that wraps around your abdominal organs and and have things happening in your body that you may not even be aware of from those dietary and those lifestyle factors. So, so that's, that, that's another important thing to just keep in mind that it's not it is not only about the weight loss as you mentioned. It's it's about all of these physiologic changes that are happening in, inside the body. Yeah, lots of people don't wear their. Um unhealthiness on the exterior. You know what I mean? There's plenty of people who are thin and taking statins and blood pressure medicine and, you know, very unhealthy. Um, They just maybe are eating the garbage food, not exercising, and their body doesn't allow them really to overeat the garbage food. They're eating the perfect amount to keep their body that size, but it's still having whatever effect on the inside that this stuff has. Right, right. And it's one of those things with inflammation and low level inflammation. It's not a sudden insult where, you know, something happens uh, immediately, but this is something that's insidious. It's protracted. It will go on and on for years. And then one day, you know, boom, out of nowhere or seemingly out of nowhere, there's a heart attack or a cancer. And it's, it's one of those things that occurs really over time. So decreasing that risk and really focusing on lifestyle and diet in the present now means that you know, you're, you're decreasing your risk and, and you are, you're decreasing this force from taking hold over all of those years down the line. Okay. So increasing, uh, vegetables, what, what, what else with the diet? Because I know plenty of vegans that I think are, have terrible diets, you know, and I, I'm not going vegan anytime soon, but I have in the last couple of months really, really increased my vegetable input and the majority of my carbohydrates are coming from vegetables now. And I feel great. Um, and and my blood work has all changed, which I was That's shocked. Great. My doctor was shocked that it happened pretty quickly. Um, but but what else are we talking about? It can't just be like, go eat at Veggie Grill and you're fine. No, is, absolutely you know not. Veggie Grill, it's like fast food. I think for I've heard of it. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, and, and and that's the exact point too. That it's not it's not about the diet's label, but really about all of these other nuanced factors. And so you know, you can increase your vegetables, but say you're just eating uh, baby uh, lettuce or uh, romaine lettuce all day, and that's your only vegetable, and you're eating that vegetable for a week, and that's the only plant food you have in your diet. 
So definitely you want to focus on the diversity. And the other thing that, that the diversity does is that it exposes you to beneficial compounds in plants. So polyphenols are very beneficial compounds that we find in a lot of these dark colored plants. So like your dark leafy greens, the purple produce, so all of those types of foods. So when you're in the grocery store, you want to gravitate towards those dark colored, very colorful types of fruits and vegetables. And, and you want to have a diverse, a diverse assortment of those types of foods. And that will bring in a lot of polyphenols into your body. Now, these aren't vitamins or minerals. So a deficiency state hasn't yet been established, but we know that these substances are very powerful at calming inflammation. And they also, uh, can be digested by your gut microbes and have positive effects on the microbiome as well. So the diversity and the colorfulness of your diet is very important. In addition to, you know, just the quantity of those whole plants and then the food preparation techniques as well. So all of these factors, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to talk about them in the label of a diet when you're talking about a certain type of diet. So when someone tells you, you know, they are following a paleo diet or a vegan diet, you have no idea if their diet is healthy or not because we have no idea what they're eating. So unless they give you some qualifiers, then, you know, you're still in the dark. Right. Yeah. It gets so tricky because I always, you know, I did keto for a while, many, many years ago, and I always would go to, you know, it would re resort to like salami and cheese. Right. And, and I wouldn't lose weight and it, it was garbage. It was like, truly like eating garbage. Um, and then I would go like, Oh, I got to do a clean keto. And even then I would wind up not losing weight. Cause I would be overeating all the food on that though. It was less processed. Um, but all, all of this becomes tricky because I do think, I do think it, that at least I often ha had, wanted it to be as easy as possible, you know, wanted to change as little as possible. And I think for me, in order to lose nearly 300 pounds and become active, I had to really change everything, but that was a very slow change. That was a change that occurred over years. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I stopped thinking about diets as the solution to my entire life and weight loss is the solution to my entire life. I had to figure out my, my life and also work on mm -hmm. maintaining weight loss, but they were kind of separate things when I stopped relying on the diet to, to solve everything. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think, I think you mentioned this earlier too, where, you know, we, we use diet, we use lifestyle. It's, they're incredibly powerful tools, but we also want to be cognizant of what modern medicine can do. So when we choose these tools, it's not like we are rejecting modern medicine. It's not like we are rejecting those pills because there are amazing, amazing therapies out there, both medical and surgical. And, you know, uh, for example, we were talking about the transplants and the fact that we can transplant multiple organs into human beings in the present. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, there are just some amazing things going on. So one of the things that diet and lifestyle can do is it can help you adapt to your medical therapy, your surgical therapy. So when we look at that data, for example, in the kidney transplant population, we find that having a Mediterranean diet, taking in those kinds of foods is actually associated with a lower rate of graft loss and rejection. So that means that your body will accept this donated kidney easier if you are on that appropriate diet. 
And of course, you know, a lot of these studies are still early studies, but we do know that changing our diet and lifestyle can help us adapt not only to our climate, not only, you know, for prevention of chronic disorders, but also help us adapt to modern medical technology. Because if we live long enough, nearly all of us will most likely have a prosthetic joint or an artificial valve or maybe an organ transplant at some point down the line. So, so we are these these uh, new humans and we are comprised of new materials in some ways and and our diet and lifestyle is just a powerful adjunctive tool in all of that yeah do you do you get depressed looking at the what's really makes up the american diet i think the depressing part of it is that we've been talking about what constitutes a beneficial diet for so long in various iterations and i think there is still so much more to do, which is why it's so great that folks like yourself have podcasts and are talking about this and are bringing this issue to the forefront. Because I I think especially also for children, when you look at the obesity crisis now, and when you look at how, how we are eating and how we are feeding our children, you know, as well, and the amount of processed foods that infiltrate you know, our dinner plates and our lunch plates. I think that's probably one of the most insidious things is the amount of processed foods that we consume as a country today. You know, it it is uh, disheartening in, in some ways that, you know, it, it there is still so much more to go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was very much not concerned with health when I started to address my my weight it it wasn't really a metric at the forefront of my mind but years go by i'm a grandfather now and health is very thank you health is very important to me and you know i want to keep my weight off but i also want to be as healthy as possible and and you know if you look at all of this stuff it would seem that eating a eating a bunch of processed food doesn't seem really good for you Right. But I I think in in like we talked about the the chemicals in vegetables that are poison and stuff in salt, I think that a tiny bit, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not an absolutist on this stuff, but I do find that if if the majority of the food that I eat has one word as its ingredient, like broccoli or salmon or, you know, whatever mushrooms, I feel better and I, there's just no getting around that for me, you know, but, but it was, it took a while to be able to recognize that because for a long time, I just missed the junk food. Yeah. And that's a great point. And what happens, you know, because those foods are designed to be so addictive. So when you're eating a lot of them, when you're eating them as the predominant part of your diet, you develop this dependence and this craving and this addiction. And even when you look at the traditional Mediterranean diet, most of the time, you know, for a dessert, they just had fruit. Occasionally, they would have a sweet. But when they had those sweets, it was usually a special occasion. It was usually on occasion and not every single day. And so it really depends on the dietary pattern. It's not just picking out one food and demonizing it. It's more just the pattern of foods. Are you mostly, like you said, taking in those whole plant foods and a diversity of those whole plant foods. And when you're doing that, as you've experienced, you you can have positive and beneficial changes. And I always tell my patients, you know, start small and make sure you try to make it pleasurable in some way, because the very word 
diet. Most of us don't want to hear that word. It's 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 just a word that I think, I mean, I, I actually don't like that word because I don't like telling my patients that they're going to be on something that's punishing and something that's, especially when, when the food you're prescribing is actually quite pleasurable. And when you look at this in the context of uh, a traditional diet like the Mediterranean diet, you realize that they were they were really just all of their senses were captivated by this diet. You know, the fresh produce, you know, um, the greens and and all of those whole grains. You know, those really delicious whole grain pastas, that bread that they baked that was just like a dark rye bread. I mean, th- this was really pleasurable, you know, uh, food for these people, and it's it should be for all of us as well. So it shouldn't be diet it should be a way of eating that is actually healthful and and uh just fills all your senses in some ways yeah it's it is funny how the words can become upsetting like for me for the longest time the word calorie just (laughs) bothered me it was upsetting i didn't want to hear it and then you know when i found it useful it was less upsetting and now it's just you know almost a mathematical word instead of you know something that's haunting me you know that i've <laughs> done something wrong or something like that but I, I i totally know what you mean people don't like the word diet even if we're just talking about what you typically eat not something restrictive right absolutely and i think same goes with exercise and and any of these other components of life where you feel like you know you have to be at a hundred percent or nothing yeah so yeah, it's it's very hard to achieve 100% of anything and I find that if you jump into the 100% pool it's really hard to sustain that. I, I like I'm amazed that I'm still eating the amount of fiber I'm eating simply because I I almost gave up on day 3 because it was so hard, you know. Yeah, it is it is really tough when when you're presented with, you know, a single option and no other, or, you know, this is the way you should eat. And then also all the noise that you hear outside with all these fad diets. And then the other thing that happens is that you end up thinking that you have to restrict all of these different foods from certain plant foods to, you know, just, um, just like pretty much anything with sugar in it, even fruit, uh, because there are, there are diets where you can't even have an apple. And I think it becomes very confusing. Uh, for folks. And it's hard because sometimes these distinctions are, you know, you may have a food intolerance that may actually not be a food sensitivity. And these intolerances are due to things like lack of digestive enzymes, like a lactose intolerance, for example. So you may have some problems with certain foods, uh, but you may actually not be getting inflamed from those foods. You may not have chronic inflammation. It may just be an enzymatic problem. And there could be a variety of other things going on in your GI tract. So I think the other thing that it's important to do is to go see a doctor and make sure that you get tested and make sure that uh, you don't have any of these other conditions um, like celiac disease and non-celiac wheat sensitivity and all of these different things that can be triggering sort of a response to certain foods before, before saying, I'm going to exclude an entire group of foods with all beans and all grains and you know, all different types of plants with certain names. So I think, I think the, the problem is that plant foods are so healthful and you need such a diversity of them that before excluding any single group from your diet, the burden of proof that it is actually harming you has to be high. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, if you're eating broccoli and it's making you sick, don't eat broccoli. Yeah. Like that's pretty <laughs> straightforward, but I, you know, I would get into these situations where my wife and her friends would do these elimination diets 
And then they would just say, no, like we have to live like this forever. And I, I would always say like, no, isn't the point you add food back in at some point, don't you start adding stuff back in and you figure out what thing yeah. is, is making you feel crappy or whatever. And they'd be like, no, no, we can never eat lectins. Lectins are now taboo and we don't eat these things called lectins. And then it turns out, well, that's all vegetables pretty much. And so, yeah. And yeah. lots of other foods like shellfish has lectin. So you're not, you, yeah. you're now not eating they're, any of these things ever again. Yeah. They're, they're found in most foods, honestly. And um, you'd have to have a very restrictive diet to, to go on that sort of a diet. And your point about elimination diets was great because even, even when I prescribe elimination diets for patients in my practice, it usually is a short-term diet, maybe two months, maybe three months. And you do add in those foods that are healthy again. And this gives your intestines and your gut some time to reset, to heal. You know, so elimination diets are prescribed in certain settings for very specific uh, medical reasons. And I think, I think it's actually, uh, really, really not so good for your body, you know, and for your health to say, I'm just going to eliminate a whole group of foods, uh, right. with, with no reason. So, so it's, that's a very, very important point. Yeah. Do, do, is there any, is there anything else? Like if we have to, um, communicate to people, uh, about this, this hidden inflammation and, and you talked about obesity, um, you talked about uh, there was a, a chronic chronic illness you you spoke about too that that you would you would you would go like okay that person's likely got that that third category of inflammation. W what are some other things to look out for in terms of uh, trying to figure out if you yourself are inflamed? Yeah. Well, I I would just say you know in general for the average person just to be sure that you are eliminating the root causes of this hidden inflammation. So that means following a very healthy diet and a lifestyle. And, and this includes, of course, exercise, uh, but also just stress reduction. You know, stress can be a huge, huge player in, in health and disease and, and really trying to bring down your stress levels uh, because we know that one mechanistic path uh, through which stress is associated with a variety of illnesses is likely inflammation. And even a stressor like uh, loneliness in the post-pandemic world, we have, we have a lot of loneliness going on. And, you know, that's with pre-pandemic uh, motions set into place. And uh, all of these, all of these stressors can, can adversely affect our lives and our health. So that, that's, that's another important part that I wanted to bring up as well. Loneliness. Loneliness. Yeah. So, so being lonely can actually uh, be as bad for your health as obesity, as smoking. How, like literally like just having friends. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not so much uh, living alone, but, but just, uh, you know, if, if a person is lonely, you know, cause you can be living alone and, and have social connections and, and be able, you know, and, and uh, not be lonely, or, uh, you can be living with a family and be incredibly lonely. So it's not so much who you're living with, or if you are not living with anyone, but the sensation of, of being lonely, of feeling isolated, of feeling alone. And that sensation, our immune systems actually respond to loneliness as they would to a germ. And again, this is, this is, uh, this is also a public health problem, not necessarily an entirely an in individual problem, because we know that, you know, when we especially see older folks who come into our clinics and, there's this problem that's been set into motion. You know, they might have a spouse and the spouse might have passed away, children living far away. And so this is a public health problem and, and, and the solutions, 
you know, should, 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 um, be coming from various directions and it's a structural problem as well. So, so we do need, do need some help in that area. And, and, and stuff like, uh, internet connection, social media does not, does not alleviate this or it can alleviate this. I think it's a tricky balance. And, you know, I would say, you know, again, there is this dichotomy where you either demonize social media or or say it's a solution to everything. And I think we fall somewhere in the middle where I think it can be good in in small doses and depending on how we use it, because I think it can connect us. But again, there is no replacement for human connection. And even if you have uh, kind of these casual connections, you know, say you're an elderly person and you're going to your favorite bookstore and you talk to the person behind the counter, even those casual day-to-day connections are so important, those in-person human connections. So I think social media and technology in general won't replace those in-person tangible encounters that we so desperately need. But I think there are ways to use social media in order to stay connected. But it's not a surrogate for for human interaction with regard to loneliness. Wow, loneliness. I all of my kids are away at school and I'm now suddenly worried that I'm lonely. I don't know. I don't (laughs) I don't you have to you have to be uh, analytically aware of your loneliness. This is what you're talking about. Yes. Or could you just be wandering through life lonely and not even realize it? Well, I, I think it really is individual dependent. You know, some folks are, are fine, you know, just being by themselves for a couple of weeks or even longer and not having any human contact during that time. And some aren't. So I think it depends on, you know, how much of an introvert or an extrovert are you? How do you spend your time? Cultural preferences. So all of these different things that, that come, come into play. And really also is not dependent on your individual living situation, but more external factors as well. Right. I have a wife, so I'm really not lonely at all. Um, but I'm cur- I'm curious about loneliness. This is a this is an interesting idea I hadn't thought about. Yeah, it was interesting to me too. I you know I had touched on uh, lifestyle factors in the book, but hadn't delved that deeply into them. And then I'd written a little bit about loneliness a couple of months after the book came out. And as I started learning more and more about it, it, it was uh, just just uh, fascinating. Just the things that happen inside of your body when when someone feels like they are chronically alone and it's a stressor it can on the cause body. inflammation it actually is tied to elevated inflammatory markers so just like any sort of a stressor a life stressor and this isn't you know the acute stress that your body is facing you know back in tribal times when we were faced with with uh, the predator that we had to fight or, or or flee from but these chronic stressors so i would put loneliness in the same compartment as you know, the chronic stress you get from a bad boss at work or maybe a divorce or a uh, bereavement. Um, of course, those are not equivalent entities, but, you know, they, they're all big stressors on the body and, and stress inflames the body. Even even something like public speaking is tied to elevated inflammatory markers in the blood. So, yeah. Do you, do you think there's any uh truth to the idea that we just haven't evolved enough to deal with modernity right and and so our bodies are rebelling a little bit like we clearly cannot deal with the amount of food that's available i i also think the the quality of food plays a big factor in that but we we're, we're seeing with obesity doing what it's doing that we haven't evolved to deal with just a pure abundance right that's not good but then other things like you're talking about loneliness and I, and I wonder if like 
happiness and stuff like that um if if the amount of technology we have doing stuff for us today might be making us miserable i think in in some in some ways yes in some ways yes because i i do think and particularly when you look at non-western and indigenous cultures around the world where traditionally diet and lifestyle and and a lifestyle that includes social connections has been such a powerful part of therapeutic medicine. When you look at those cultures, you know that that's something that hasn't taken hold, hasn't taken a hold in the West as much. And I do think that having everything done for you, having technology do everything for you, um, probably probably can decrease that sense of, you know. Uh, that sense of accomplishment and especially for, you know, for, for having these tangible encounters and for, for actually uh, being in the natural world. You know, I, I say it's great to actually go outside and be in nature every day if you can. And I think we're losing some touch with the fact that we, our bodies crave that connection with the natural world and, and not just, you know, going out hiking and getting exposed to all of these germs, which is incredibly important, but also human connections, connections with animals, you know, just these tangible encounters in life that technology cannot replace, um, you know, just uh, going down and taking a walk to that favorite restaurant of yours, uh, instead of having the takeout delivered directly to your place or having a conversation with someone on a phone or in person, as opposed to just ordering everything online. I think, the problem too is that we're so geared towards maximizing efficiency and then you know at the expense of everything else right and when we've maximized that efficiency we're like well what's next i have all this time on my hands because i've maximized efficiency but what's next and it goes back i think to that idea of therapeutic uh, things that you do like baking that sourdough bread taking that time where sure you may have your bread you know it may take a lot longer but you are actually gaining these immeasurable things by doing that well-being uh and and i think we need to incorporate a different uh, mindset to life in some ways when yeah. thinking about just maximizing efficiency right is efficiency being able to buy a loaf of sourdough bread at the store you know, at 3 a.m., is that efficiency or is yeah. the fermentation pre-digesting the gluten? Is that efficiency, yeah. right? And which, I'm not saying which is more efficient, but yeah. like literally like it might take longer, but it might be more efficient because more people might not get as sick. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying everyone has to bake their own bread. I know sure. that's a tall order, but it's um, fun. It's fun. It, you it know, it's fun. I think um, those immeasurable things that I was talking about when you when you bake your own bread, you know, the smells, the sounds, and maybe you share it with people. Maybe you sit down and have your meals, you know, at uh, a, a table and, and and you have your meals with with uh, friends and family. And I think those things that, that tend to receive in general less focus uh, are, are actually just so important for health as well, those social connections and and um, such. Yeah. Dr. Ravel, this is a lot to think about. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate this. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. And now for the Q&A. I've got a question for you from Chris. Hi, Chris. Chris says, I used to be a very skinny, picky eater when I was a child. I didn't start enjoying the taste of most food until I was in college. Since college, 
I've struggled with binge eating, exercising, and gaining weight. I'm 47 now. I don't have my first meal until around noon, and honestly, I'm not usually hungry until I start eating. Once I do start, it's very hard to stop. No matter how much I fill up, I snack and snack until dinner around 7. I'll feel sick but still want to eat. Then I go to sleep and it starts all over the next day. I run or walk four to five times a week, but it's becoming harder and harder to keep it up. I feel like I have a food addiction. I have heard you talk about food addiction on your show. Any advice on how to convince my brain or stomach that I know it's time to stop eating? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the hardest things for me because um, neither of those things, my brain nor my stomach, will are are really always directly under my control. So whether whether I'm, you know, quote unquote full or not, I can still continue to eat. So I, I really have to be very diligent with the amount of food I have for the day. And it, and it really started with preparing tomorrow to today's food yesterday so that I'm, this is all I have to eat. I'm not eating anything outside of this. So I can either do what he's talking about and eat it all just straight through or pace it out and portion it out and eat it throughout the day when I'm truly hungry. But, um, and, and I was very, uh, diligent with not breaking that. Like if I meal prepped, I didn't eat anything else. I didn't snack on anything else. I, I tried to not have snackable foods around me. You know, I would keep my food in a cooler and not mess with the refrigerator, you know, just anything mm -hmm. I could do to go, this is what I have today and I'm not eating anything else. I don't eat like my job, you go to my work and there's always a, a, a truck that will make you pretty much anything you can imagine. Like, you know, imagine one of those when I was a kid, we called them roach coaches, but I don't know what they call them now. That's probably not appropriate roach coach. I can get canceled for calling it that, but that's what we call them. It's just a truck like a, at a construction food site. Truck. They pull up yeah. a food truck. Yeah. Food truck. But like now they're super fancy and they've got like Korean tacos and stuff like that. But this is just like the traditional one where you want a breakfast burrito. They'll make you that. Um, you want a cheeseburger. They'll make you that. And at the same time, there's a table where um you go and there's all kinds of like snacks laid out candy or like a charcuterie plate or bagels like there's so much food at my work and then there's a catered lunch and then sometimes a catered dinner like there's just so much food so it's very hard for me to walk up to a table and grab a snack and and fit whatever i'm just picking up into whatever structure I've got in my head for the day and keep it all straight. So I just make my food and bring my food with me and I can pay attention like, Hey, if I've eaten half my food by lunchtime, that's good. But if I've gone over that, then we're in the danger zone of me getting hungry later on. So I need to slow down. I mean, that's really how I've managed it. I don't have to do that quite as much anymore, but I, I was very, very diligent with that for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, I 
fully relate to what this person is asking because I have the same thing once I just sort of start snacking or doing or whatever it does. I can be at work and also have snacks available and not be hungry at all and just kind of like that will be good. That will taste good. This will give me some temporary moment of pleasure, you know, or whatever because sometimes eating isn't always about being hungry. It's like other stuff too, right? Like wanting some feeling of satisfaction or whatever. So um, I really relate to that. But everything you're saying is, yeah, that's that's also relatable too. And I know how, I mean, yeah, it's just that diligence. So yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from and I'm just like having my own, like, yep, (laughs) it's not easy. You know what I mean? It's just not, it's not easy. And listen, I've never worked in an office, but I've, I've, I, I, I believe offices have a break room or a snack room or, you you know, it might not be as elaborate as we have on production sets. Um, God, they love to feed us, man. They just want us all fat. It's crazy. It's actually crazy when you think about it. This is diverting just a bit, but what other job is there where there, it's like expected that there is a ton of food always there. No one has to think about their own food. It's just all provided. It It's kind of crazy. Like, yes, there's offices with break rooms. I have a friend who works at an office at just, uh, corporation. And she said, there's always a room with snacks. I know people that work at ad agencies where it's like four o'clock on a Friday, there's a cocktail cart that comes around, you know, cocktails and like, at work. Wow. Uh, yeah. Literally like it's Friday, it's four, you know? And I, I mean, it just takes a lot of, it can take a lot of uh, discipline to stay away from that stuff if it's not on, you know, your plan. Yeah. I try not to eat while watching TV. I try not to eat at the movies you know, and I, I really did spend a number of years preparing all my food and only eating what I prepared. And I was very, very sure that the amount I was preparing was the amount I wanted in order to lose weight. And then in order to maintain my weight for a long time, that's how I did it. And now I'm a little bit looser, but I've maintained my weight for years now, you know, and I, yeah. I feel a little bit more confident in eyeballing stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And if anyone else has a question they would like Ethan to answer on the podcast, you can email it to us. The address is hello at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.